Acts 19 and verses 8 through 10. Hear the word of God. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to respond to it as we hear it uh, in ways that would glorify you. We thank you for having given us a light to light our ways. And we pray that uh, you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There was a little boy who was asked by his mother after he had been to Sunday school class uh, what he had been taught, or at least so the story goes. And uh, the boy thought for a minute and he said, well, we learned about Moses. Uh, Moses went behind the enemy lines, rescued the Israelites and went over to the Red Sea. When he got to the Red Sea, he built a pontoon bridge over the uh, Red Sea and they crossed over. And then he saw the uh, the enemy coming in their tanks, and so he had to get on his walkie-talkie and call headquarters, and they sent dive bombers and blew up the bridge, and then the Israelites went on. And the mother said, now, son, you shouldn't be making up stories like that. It didn't really happen that way. And he said, well, if you heard what the teacher said really went on, you would not believe that. <laughs> and uh, obviously, that is an apocryphal story, a made-up story, but we many times make up stories of our own to try to explain in uh, terms that we can understand what goes on uh, in the Scripture and what goes on in the lives of other people. We hear of others who have had a total victory over sins that we have struggled and struggled with, and we become skeptical and we think, could that really be happening in their lives? It seems like it's too difficult for it to happen to me. Or we might hear stories uh, that go on in China and Africa and uh, South America about supernatural events and miracles and healings and demons being cast out. And people are skeptical and they come up with their own story of the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And it usually just involves what our human efforts can achieve, our planning and uh, our programs. And the end result is much the same. Not as crass as what this boy came up with and his definition of how the kingdom went, you know, with dive bombers and, and things like that. But it's just what human flesh can accomplish, and it's not the story of the kingdom that the Scripture portrays. This whole chapter is a marvelous testament to the advancement of Christ's kingdom from beginning to end. And uh, the verses we're going to look at are really just a brief summary of that advance. And I'm sure there were times that were boring, and there were times that were not so boring as Paul advanced uh, the kingdom as an administrator under the Lord Jesus Christ, but it all begins in verse 1. One of the first things that Paul did when he came to the city of Ephesus was to introduce believers to the power of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last week in verses 1 through 7. What I want to say is that Luke's introduction here, his description of that infilling of the Holy Spirit is not simply a symbol that is absent of... um, continuing meaning in our lives. There are some people who say, well, yeah, there was a a Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that included the Jews, and then there was a Pentecost uh, later on in Acts chapter 8 that included the Samaritans, and then there was a Pentecost that included the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. They don't quite know what to do with this because there's not another category to include, but they say this has got to be a once and for all, never repeatable event as well. But Luke is doing something here. He is thematically connecting the first seven verses with everything else that is going on uh, in this chapter to indicate that the advancement of the kingdom cannot be achieved simply with human ingenuity and with human power. Instead, he wants us to understand that the prayer for the filling of the Holy Spirit was the prelude to overcoming the deadness of that synagogue. Verses 8 through 10, which is what we're going to look at today. And it was the prelude to conquering the demonic, verses 11 through 17. And it's the prelude to bringing reformation in verses uh, 18 through 20 and the handling of persecution in verses 21 through 41. And so last week, 
we saw that being filled on a daily basis with the power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential for true victory in our lives. I don't want you to see this passage. We have to break it down into little pieces, but that's not the way it was written. We should not disconnect this passage from the infilling of the Spirit earlier and from the miracles that came later. They're all bound together in a watertight uh, story that Luke is weaving. And so we can no more advance God's kingdom in our own strength then revivalists can schedule a revival. They can't schedule a revival. They can't. So we are going to be looking at four characteristics that do involve human activity. Obviously, we are very involved, and Paul was very involved, but all of these are prospered by God's grace. Now, let's look at the first characteristic. Advancing the kingdom sometimes involves efforts at reform. Verse 8 shows Paul trying to bring reform to a dead synagogue. Now, the synagogues of Paul's day remind me very much of the mainline churches in America that used to be on fire for the Lord on the front lines, you know, of the battlefield. And in the same way, the Jews who started many of these synagogues uh, were very aggressive in planting and very visionary, planting synagogues in almost every hamlet and town and city in the Roman Empire. It's just remarkable how far spread they were. And many of these uh, synagogues were filled with grace. They had a powerful impact upon Gentiles, making many of those Gentiles God-fearers. They were transformational in that they impacted every level of society. You can see people who were all the way up into uh, the emperor's government, but down in the local level, they were impacting every area of society, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did years before. But what happened is that over time, little compromises came in. Those little compromises led to greater compromises, which were not disciplined by the churches. And as God is grieved and he begins to uh, leave these uh, synagogues, uh, the, the faith of these people begin to wane. They lose the joy and the enthusiasm and the power of their faith. And they begin to operate the synagogues in their own strength and they become so used to operating in terms of the status quo that when Paul comes along and bucks the status quo, they resist. They're resisting the Word of God. And so you're coming from people who are dynamite, you know, in terms of advancing the kingdom of God all the way down to resisting the truth. The downgrade you see in the synagogues very, very parallel to the downgrade that we have seen over the last 200 years in many of the mainline uh, denominations uh, in America. Now, that does not mean there were not believers in those synagogues. There are believers in the mainline churches as well. But even those believers in those synagogues had what Paul spoke of as a form of godliness, but without the power. They had a form of godliness, but without the power. And I'm sure Paul was tempted to just abandon and leave those uh, synagogues because they had brought so much pain and suffering into his life. Now, here's the question. Can a liberal church or denomination become reformed? And I think if we believe in the kingdom of God, we have to say, yes, God's hand is not too short that it cannot save. Uh, he can reform all of those. In fact, recent history, we've had the first cult, genuine cult that has repented of its cultishness and become an evangelical church. It's the worldwide church of God. Now, they lost a lot of money and a lot of churches in the process, but there was a reformation that happened. You see, God's kingdom grace and His power can penetrate the darkest uh, re recesses of, uh, of Satan's kingdom. Now, the title for today's sermon is Advancing the Kingdom of God. And if you look at verse 8, you'll see this is a theme that drove Paul. Uh, in verse 8, he says, "...reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom..." Of God. Uh, with the ascension of Jesus to his throne, Christ is extending his kingdom and claiming every square inch of planet earth. And this is something that drove Paul. It was a vision that drove him to bring everything under the lordship of Christ. Here are synagogues which are rejecting the lordship of Christ, and so that cannot go unanswered and unchallenged. And so uh, Paul uh, is addressing the synagogues. Without Christ, they have no power. I grew up in Ethiopia, and we had to study a little bit of the history of Ethiopia. 
And one of the stories that I uh, was kind of humored about when I first heard it was about uh, the Emperor Menelik. He was before Haile Selassie. Uh, He ruled from 1899, I believe it was, till 1913. And he heard about this uh, remarkable device that uh, helped uh, hardened criminals and uh, to put a a stop to their criminality. It was called the electric chair. And uh, he purchased one of these electric chairs and was very disappointed. It didn't work. It had no electricity in, uh, (laughs) in Ethiopia. And not wanting to you know, just abandon this elaborate purchase that he made, he turned it into his throne. And so his throne was uh, an electric chair. Now, uh, I'd have to, I probably should check (laughs) the the validity of that story, but that's what we were told is what he had done. But I thought, you know, that is a perfect symbol of what goes on in so many Christians' lives. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, but they are boldly holding on to the form. Okay? Okay. They talk about the kingdom of God. They write books about the kingdom. Kingdom, kingdom is wonderful, wonderful theology, but they lack the power of the kingdom. In fact, they're nervous about the power of the kingdom of God. Uh, Over and over in the Gospels, the kingdom is connected to things like healings and casting out of demons. And they say, oh, that power switch we're not comfortable with. Uh, Let's not go there. Uh, Listen to what Matthew 12, verse 28 says about the kingdom. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He connects the two. And throughout the book of Acts, the message of the apostles was the message of the kingdom. In fact, that's the last verse of Acts, Acts 28, and and, uh, the very last verse uh, says that Paul uh, dwelt there two whole years preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. The message of Acts from the first chapter through to the last chapter is the advancement of the powerful kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul was a part of that process, people are rescued out of darkness. They're rescued from deadness of their religion, even if they are genuine believers. Uh, They are given power in terms of healings and miracles, casting out of demons. They turn culture upside down. Lord willing, in a later sermon, we're going to be seeing how Ephesus was indeed turned upside down in terms of its culture. But Paul starts in a very tough place, the synagogue. These were the people who had run Paul out of town, stoned him, gotten him into trouble in so many cities before, And it took faith to seek to reform another synagogue when he has had a history of failure after failure in reforming synagogues. Now, there were some synagogues that were completely made Christian and were reformed, but most of them just really opposed him and resisted him. And so it took real faith for him to be able to uh, try to do this again. What usually happened is he went from reforming, which didn't work, into sheep rescuing uh, venture. But why did Paul go ahead and do this, even though he knew this is a dangerous thing to do, to try to bring reform to the synagogues. Well, whether or not God prospered, Paul knew Christ had called him to make this as at least part of his ministry, and he knew God would, in his own way, connect the dots. Now, this has been interesting to me because many years ago, God, I believe, clearly called me to at least part of my ministry to be involved in reformation of the evangelical church at large. Uh, which is in great need of of reformation. Now, what's happened has sometimes been discouraging. You'll get pastors who they start getting excited about the Reformed faith and reading different books, and then they get shoved out of their congregation. They've got to go to another city, and I'm hoping a whole church will come and be reformed. But you never know. You never know the impact that you might have as you share uh, with uh, people a, a scripture or an email. Um, I have been uh, recently receiving emails from people who have been reading some of the literature that I've posted on Biblical Blueprints website. Some of these people have had their eyes completely opened, but there's been others. It's been very interesting. They've not had their eyes opened. They want to debate me on their forums and forum, Roman Catholic forums and uh, Greek Orthodox forums, other like that. So on my time off, I've been writing and debating with some of these people 
And the interesting thing is these people are trying to convince me, but in the process they've opened up hundreds of others who are viewing these emails and I'm getting letters from them. Thank you so much for coming on this forum. This is the first time I've ever heard you know, about some of these doctrines. And so you never know how a word, an email, a book that you've lent out to other people could have an impact in their lives. I think of the discouragement of one uh, German evangelist. He must have been discouraged when he saw somebody that he'd given an evangelistic tract to, uh, just crumple it up and throw it on the ground. Probably never did find out what impact that had later on, but we know, because we got a little bit of the providential history on it, we know what happened. After uh, one of uh, Hitler's bodyguards by the name of Kurt Wagner picked up that crumpled piece of paper, uh, this was right after Hitler had committed suicide, and he was going to commit suicide too, uh, but he said, I- I'm going to have one more coffee before I commit suicide. <laughs> Who knows why he was going to have a coffee. But on the way to get his coffee, he saw this crumpled up piece of paper. He picked it up, just casually reading it, and a line struck him, and he could not put it down. He read that evangelistic tract from beginning to end. He immediately was so convicted of his sins that he went to a pastor, and he was turned from a hardened man into a man saved by God's grace. You never know the impact. God knows how to connect these dots that we are just a part of. Verse 8 says, this is what was happening to the Jews there. God was sovereignly connecting dots. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly. Now, what is needed? If we are going to be prospered and bringing reformation uh, to churches that have become dead, what is going to be required? We've already seen it requires faith, It requires trying. If you don't try, it's not going to happen. But here it indicates it requires boldness as well. Usually a compromised Christianity has no interest in you exposing their compromises. You know, a a Christianity that has theological deficiency is not going to be very happy when you expose the errors that they have. And this got Paul into trouble in church after church, city after city in the empire. And yet it also produced God's grace. It produced life in the hearts of people. And so it did take boldness. Now, we did see in the early chapters of Acts, this is one of the remarkable fruits of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 4, you know, they're praying. Holy Spirit comes upon them, fills them, and they speak the Word of God with boldness. We need boldness if there is going to be reformation in America. It also requires the use of reason. Verse 8 says, for three months' reasoning. Now, let me tell you something. It doesn't take three months to tell people to force spiritual loss. He was not repeating the same watered-down stuff over and over and over again like happens in so many churches. No, what Paul was engaged in took a lot more time, a lot more energy, because what was he doing? He was confronting head-on the errors that they were, that they were uh, holding on to. He he was um, uh, contrasting their assumptions with what the presuppositions of the Word of God were. He was systematizing the truth. It takes hard work to engage in reformation. And elsewhere, Paul says, it requires tearing down strongholds and every high thing that has exalted itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ, taking every thought captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. It requires reasoning. Now, I should hasten to add, just because you have reasoned outstandingly does not mean everybody's going to believe you, right? Because they've got sinful hearts. Uh, So you can have done a great job, and people still may not buy into your theology. Some people have their minds made up. So don't confuse me with the facts. I got my mind made up. But there were many who were convinced. Why? Because he was willing to reason with them. He had an intellectually satisfying faith. And the reduced, compromised, often vacuous faith that the evangelical church has will never bring reformation because every reformation has been a reasoned reformation. But verse 8 goes on to indicate that Paul is calling for change as well. This is not purely academic. The word persuading in verse 8 contains the idea of obedience in it. Here's how the dictionary defines it persuading to come to a particular point of view and course of action. Okay, so it's not just academic. It's persuading, yes, in terms of the truth, to come to a particular point of view and consistent action with that. 
Paul was not just content with people holding to the right uh, truths. He wanted to see them changed. Now that means he has to show them how to change, but it also means God's Spirit's got to be working in these people to enable them to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do. I want to be open to any change you call for me to make. Jill Briscoe was approached by a young woman who wanted help, and the woman uh, said to her, Jill, I've lost my joy. I've lost my peace, and I want it back. And Jill Briscoe said to her, Where did you lose it? And the woman replied, That has nothing to do with it. Help me get it back. And Jill asked again, But where did you lose it? I don't want to talk about that, was the reply. Now, eventually she did talk about it, and uh, she said that she lost her peace and joy when she moved in with her boyfriend. And here's the thing. She did not like the fruit of her sin, a loss of victory and power and joy and peace and fellowship with God. She didn't like that, but she didn't want to get rid of her sin either. I'm sorry. You can't have it both ways. If you want kingdom power, you've got to also embrace kingdom repentance and kingdom living. It's not just the theology of the kingdom, but it's the practice of the kingdom that we must embrace. And this, too, got Paul into trouble in many, many congregations that he preached in uh, throughout uh, the Roman Empire. If we're not interested in change, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be listening to my preaching, and you're just going to get hardened. If you're not interested in change, preaching will harden you, just like it hardened the people and congregation after congregation that Paul was preaching to. And so if we are to successfully advance the kingdom of God by way of reformation, we must confront wrong theology and wrong practice. Now, the last thing that we see in verse 8 is if reform is to be successful, it will involve comprehensive teaching. Now, we've already hinted at that. Uh, Paul did not just give the way of salvation, did he? Uh, It says he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. His preaching was as broad as the kingdom. How broad is the kingdom? Matthew 28 says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus claims every square inch of heaven, every square inch of planet earth, right? It is a broad, comprehensive, which means if Jesus has authority over... Economics, that's something on earth, isn't it? If he has authority over economics, it means we need to be preaching consistent with his authority. We need to be applying his laws to economics. If he has authority over politics, where do we know his authority? It's in his word. We've got to be applying the word of God, his laws, his blueprints to politics. We've got to apply it to family, all of the other areas. And that's exactly what Paul did. Acts 20, verse 20, he told these Ephesian elders this, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. And then in verse 27, he said, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. No wonder it took him three years of teaching every single day, at least five hours a day, but there seemed to be evening teaching as well that he was engaged in. It took a long time. Now, there are some people who are willing to bring reform to one little area of life maybe two or three over here, but there are some subjects they will not touch with a 10-foot pole. But if reform is needed, because of the way all truth is interconnected, if you do not have a comprehensive teaching, you will not get full-scale reformation. This is the genius of the Protestant Reformation. They knew the Word of God applied to all of life, and they radically sought to apply it to all of life, to economics, to politics, to business. It didn't matter what you did. They applied the Word of God, and it made a profound, a profound impact. In fact, one historian said John Calvin was the founder virtually of America. And they said, despite the fact that John Calvin never set foot on American soil, How could he be the founder of America? Well, they went on to say his theology is what drove the people of America because it framed their thinking, their worldview. It framed the institutions of America. It framed the way they did education and and economics. Everything was framed in America by Kelvin's worldview. That's the kind of comprehensive teaching we desperately need in America. Now, anytime you bring the truth, it cuts two ways. It reforms some 
it hardens others. And that's exactly what we see going on in verse 9. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, some people would call this sheep stealing. Paul would no doubt call it sheep rescuing, okay? Uh, He knew they needed to be rescued. There is a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and it blasts uh, us evangelicals for sheep stealing from Rome, okay? And these evangelicals and Catholics have signed this document. We're not going to sheep steal from each other, okay? We're going to respect each other's communions. But you think about it, this is really parallel with what Paul is doing in this passage here. Paul deliberately pulled true believers out of those synagogues. Now, here is the reaction that people will have when this happens. They will say, oh, you can't be taking believers out of those those congregations. That's going to make those congregations even weaker. Yes, and it's also going to make these believers much, much stronger in their faith. And Paul was concerned about the true believers not being hurt and for them to be strong. So here's the question. When is it legitimate to rescue sheep from other congregations? When is it legitimate for those sheep to leave other congregations or other denominations? We're not talking here about transferring from one good denomination to another denomination, which is another, another question. There are parallels uh, from some of these principles, but that's, not where, that's, that's a discussion for another time, and that's something we're considering. But uh, that's a, a, a different question. Here we're talking about when... What what things need to be in place to to recognize we need to rescue sheep from that organization? Five things we need to look at. First, verse 9 says, when some were hardened. Is there a hardening that has happened among the leadership? That's the first question that we need to ask. The word hardened means stubborn, unyielding, hardened, and impervious to something. And that is a scary state to be in. It's not just unbelievers who can be in that. I've seen Christians who have become hardened. And you might say, well, it's just a little area that they're hardened in. You can't ever stay static. You may be hardened against and stubbornly resisting a small area in your life, but what happens is a spread of hardening. Why? Because we're grieving the Holy Spirit. And as as this hardening of the arteries spreads to more and more areas, these people begin to not really care that they don't have a biblical answer for the objections that you are bringing from the Bible. They don't care. They've dug in their heels. This is what they believe, and they're going to be sticking by it. So it's a hardening of heart. Scripture indicates when we grieve the Spirit, He doesn't open our eyes to other passages. And over time, we become so deaf, so spiritually blind, you can throw all of the Scriptures you want at those people. They are impervious to that. That's what hardening means. They're stubborn. They're impervious. They cannot be reached by that. It takes almost a Nathan, you know, with a nuclear missile busting through the defenses before they they, they really open up. And Scripture indicates it's often better to just leave those people alone. Don't even argue with them. Just leave them be. Now, God can rescue them. He might have to take, like Nathan the prophet, you know, to break through his defenses. But for the average person, it's better to just leave. And again, does this mean that none of them that were left in that synagogue were believers? No, not necessarily. Again, let me give you some scriptures that indicate even believers can get so hardened that they are insensitive to the Spirit, and they will get progressively more hardened if they don't repent. Mark 16, verse 14. Jesus spoke to his disciples of their hardness of heart. He said this, He appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Same word there, their hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So they were stubborn in their unbelief. Hebrews 3.8, the writer warns believers, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the trial in the wilderness. Same Greek word, and he's addressing believers. A few verses later, he says, beware, brethren. So they're fellow believers. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another to daily while it is cold today, lest any of you be, parta- uh, be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now that's the kind of hardness of heart Paul was preaching against under point one. God can change that hardness. He can penetrate. He can pierce through. And he was doing exactly that under point number one. 
But when a church or a denomination has had numerous testimonies brought against it and they remain stubborn even in the face of overwhelming evidence, it becomes better to just leave. It does not make any sense for people to stay in the PCUSA or in the Methodist church. Paul would say, you're wasting your time if you're trying to reform them. Get out. Yes, God can reform, but He can reform from the outside. It doesn't have to be from the inside. But he would say, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. Why? You can become corrupted with those that you are covenanted with. Lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now, the next criteria is failure to believe the Word of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe. Now, here's an interesting question. Did not believe what? How much did they not believe? These Jews in the first century obviously had a lot of doctrine in common with Paul's. One of the reasons he started at the synagogue level, they believed the Scriptures were the inerrant Word of God. They believed in a recent creation. They believed in a day of judgment, a resurrection. There were a lot of conservative doctrines that they held on to, but there were some fundamental doctrines that they stubbornly refused to believe. Why? It was difficult for them to change. It would have made them in trouble with some of their, uh, with some of their neighbors. So, um, Paul, uh, despite the fact that there was overwhelming evidence that he was throwing at them, they refused to believe. Third criteria is that the person or group has started actively opposing the truth. So, we're not just talking about ignorance here or about lack of understanding or confusion over the doctrine. That's a totally different issue. We're talking about an active, deliberate resistance to the truth. Verse 9 says, "...but spoke evil of the way." So this is an undermining of the Scripture. Now, I've got this happening in one group that I've been ministering to. Most of the group are receptive, but there is one person there who very brilliantly but obstinately uh, does everything he can to keep people from believing fundamental doctrines of the Bible, like the inerrancy of, of the Scripture. But he does so in such a clever way, he comes across looking like the hero, you know, we should not engage in idolatry and bibliolatry, you know, and worshiping the Bible. We need to be worshiping God, and that's what the Scripture is directing us to. And he's very brilliant in the way in which he undermines uh, the Scripture. But as I've been interacting with these people, there are others who are beginning for the first time to recognize this guy is a liberal. He, he really is a liberal. They had not realized that at all. And so the debate, as per point one, has been helpful. It's flushed out the bad guys. It's revealed who is open to the truth. And it's my prayer many of these people would leave their liberal denominations. Now, the fourth criteria for knowing when to rescue sheep out of a church is when the leaders of the church publicly oppose the truth of the Word. This is not just a private disagreement with Paul. They made a public stand, which means they had their pride hanging on this, making it even more unlikely they're going to change. It says, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. They're trying to persuade everyone of their error. Now, again, it doesn't mean mean that they can't change. But when churches publicly repudiate sound doctrine, they make it hard for others to believe sound doctrine, it's one of five indicators it may be time to leave. The fifth criteria is a bit subjective. But it's giving enough time to make it evident that change won't happen. Paul did not make a snap decision after one or two days of dialoguing with these people, get ticked off and say, okay, we're out of here. No, he stuck with them for three months. Three months. In contrast, some people stay in the PCUSA for a whole lifetime saying, well, we're hoping for some miracle of change. We want to bring reform in this denomination. And what Paul would say is it's a waste of time and it is negatively affecting you. You don't realize the degree to which you are going down. How long is sufficient time? I don't know, but I know it's not a lifetime. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, much less than that. For Paul, three months was sufficient to know. So what Paul was doing in this passage, he, he was sheep rescuing. He was letting the sheep know, if you guys stay in that congregation, it's going to be bad for your spiritual health. It's not going to be in your best interests. Right around this time that he's in Ephesus, he writes a letter to Corinth, and he says this, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Now, some people weigh themselves down unnecessarily by staying in liberal denominations. 
They're not willing to count the cost of leaving a beautiful building. And, uh, you know, the nostalgia of their memories in that uh, congregation and friends and family. And, you know, that stained glass window that was dedicated to grandpappy. And they just have a hard time giving all of that up. But Paul says, you need to make a clean break. It's weighing you down. Uh, I read about uh, Alexander the Great when he was advancing to Persia. He was noticing that his soldiers were having a much more difficult time fighting much less in, uh, effective. And he realized they were way too weighted down with the booty and the loot that they had gotten from their previous campaigns. Now, they were going after Persia, which was vastly wealthy. He knew he could more than compensate them. But he said, throw all your boot and looty into this pile. We're burning it. And the, the soldiers protested bitterly against this, but he explained to them, you're going to do it. They burned it, and it worked. Uh, one historian said that immediately after this, they fought so much better. He said that it was as if wings had been given to them. They walked lightly again. And this is what Christians need to do with their burdens. Uh, yes, they can be involved in reforming churches, but when it appears that no change is possible, they need to cast off the burden and just get on with life. And you know what? Those who have left liberal denominations have testified afterwards. I can't believe I didn't leave earlier. It's just like I'm free. I'm free like a bird. I've got joy. You know, what I'm doing really counts. I'm not always butting my head up against a wall. And they can't believe that they did not lay their burdens down earlier. The last thing that Paul did in verse 9 was to form a new fellowship. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, the name Tyrannus means tyrant. Who would name his kid tyrant, you know? Uh, so most commentaries say it probably wasn't a name given by the, the, the parents. It was probably a nickname that was given by the students of this teacher. Uh, the, <laughs> the philosophy teachers there can sometimes be pretty rough. So uh, who knows uh, where, where it came from. But uh, the commentators say uh, what's going on here is that during the time that the school, the philosophy school, was not being used by Tyrannus, Paul was renting it. And we do have some early tradition that actually has specific information that he rented it from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Those are the hot hours of the day. And they said that Tyrannus used the school during the cool morning, cool evening, and he let the Christians deal with it during the hot day. We don't need to assume he was a Christian. He may have become a Christian uh, we don't need to assume that that is true. But whatever the case, Paul found rental facilities that would accommodate daily training in the Scriptures, and out of this school would come young leaders who would totally change the face and the, the look of Asia, the province of Asia. You see, there is an exponential increase in their ministry once these people leave the dead synagogue and they start... Uh, serving the Lord outside of it. God blessed that decision. Now, the third thing, and I just want to briefly touch on this, is the intensive nature of the teaching. Advancing the kingdom of God involves intensive teaching. I've already mentioned, it's clear, he didn't just preach the gospel. Uh, he taught the things of the kingdom so extensively that it took a lot of time. Now, let's just use a little bit of math here. Verse 8 mentions the first three months that the disciples were taught. Verse 9 mentions the next two years, and then commentators assume that the rest of the chapter, there's another nine months in there, and the reason we can come to that conclusion is that Acts 20, verse 31 says this, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Three years of intensive teaching of much the same people for at least four to five hours during the day, and then... Uh, it seems like there's evening hours that he is teaching as well. Now, does that mean every believer got that kind of teaching? And I would say, no, I don't think we need to assume that. But the leaders that he was raising up got an immense amount of teaching uh, during that period of time. And that's one of my gripes with Christianity today, is that it does not have a desire for the kind of in-depth teaching that John Calvin gave and Luther gave. I mean, they followed exactly this pattern. They needed to for people to be caught up to speed. Uh, they're not interested in having every thought taken captive to Christ. But you know what? It is worthwhile. A direct result of this intensive teaching 
was the success of the gospel throughout the province of Asia in verse 10. See, Daniel 11, verse 32 says, those who know their God can do great exploits. You've got to know Him. You've got to know Him. Secondly, the teaching was not esoteric or purely theoretical. We've already seen this hinted at in verse 8. But the phrase, the way, in verse 9, implies a practical living out of the Word. And it implies the Word's being lived out in such a way it really is a new way of living. It's, it, it's, it, it's a pattern of living that they have. And until churches start teaching specific biblical blueprints for every area of life, they can kiss the success of verse 10 goodbye. It will not happen. And by the way, let me just ask this question. What scripture was it that Paul was intensively teaching for a minimum of 5,500 hours? It was likely a lot more because he was teaching in the evening as well. But we know it's got to be at least 5,500 hours. What scripture was he teaching? How do I get 5,500 hours? Okay, 11 a.m., 4 p.m., multiply that times seven days a week uh, and um, times three years. But a lot more than that. But let me repeat that question. What scripture was it that Paul was intensively teaching for all those three years? They didn't have hardly any of the New Testament. Galatians had been written. He was just in the process of writing 1st and 2nd Corinthians while he was in Ephesus. There wasn't much New Testament. It was the Old Testament scriptures that he was teaching. The blueprints of the Old Testament transformed businessmen like Philemon and Aquila and other businessmen. It was the Old Testament blueprints that enabled these Christians to live a rubber-meets-the-road practical Christianity. It transformed their lives. It gave them success. And why would it not give them success? Joshua 1, verses 8 and 9 says, When we immerse ourselves and meditate on God's laws day and night, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Listen to what Deuteronomy 32 says. Set your hearts in all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. Not your death, but your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Now, they were possessing a new land. They're taking the conquest of Asia, right? Taking the Great Commission seriously. But it was giving them success in what they were doing. And it provided the way in which they should walk. We desperately need the Old Testament teaching if we're to effectively advance God's kingdom. Psalm 1 tells us, meditate in it day and night, then you will have success. Now, so far we've seen advancing the kingdom sometimes involves efforts at reform. Sometimes it involves abandoning reform and rescuing sheep. Uh, and always it involves intensive teaching. But lastly, it also involves multiplying your leaders. And I believe that a lot of what Paul was doing was training up new leaders to replace him when he moved on. He was always about leadership training, always. No one can do all of the work by themselves. And uh, some years ago, I believe God convinced me that I, for the rest of my life, that God gives me productive thinking and ability to work, for the rest of my life, I need to, to, to be training at least one leader, but one to three leaders, investing my life, whether informally or formally, investing my life uh, into them and uh, multiplying uh, myself. And uh, I've been doing that with the pastoral interns, but we also have uh, weekly uh, leadership um, uh, training. Uh, right now it's uh, Andrew, Ben Kaiser, and, and Mike, uh, but uh, there's others. By the way, Ben Luters uh, wants to be part of this um, uh, leadership training as well. And if in the next uh, two or three weeks he can raise up enough money before all the tickets sell on the plane, I've already got my tickets to China, um, uh, then uh, he will go with me. And I think this will be huge. It will be a real boost in terms of his own leadership, his confidence, and being able to invest into his life. So I'm bringing this up so that you can pray for him. But also, if the Lord lays on your heart to contribute money toward his trip, you need about how much, uh, Ben? $2,500 that he needs. If anybody lays it on your hearts to contribute to his trip, uh, just write a check to Biblical Blueprints. I mention this now because we don't have a lot of time going on. There's others like Andrew. Uh, Lord willing, he might go with me next year. And there may be others in the congregation. But these are ideal ways in an intensive fashion to invest 
in the upcoming emerging leaders within our congregation. Anyway, multiplying leaders, essential to the advancement of God's kingdom. And I've called from the various commentators some of the leaders that Paul raised up, and they're in your outline there. Let me just read it. Erastus, Titus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus, Philemon, Archippus, Aristarchus, Sosthenes, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Aquila, Priscilla, and the twelve that are mentioned in verse 7. Now, it's possible some of those names may have been some of the twelve um, that were rebaptized in verse 6, but look at the incredible results that happened as a result of r- raising up these leaders. Uh, you know, stopping the fruitless fighting that was not getting anywhere within the, the synagogue, pulling out and having a positive ministry that was synergistic. Here is the result, verse 10. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That's an astonishing statement. In three years, it says, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word. That's astonishing. Now, they didn't hear it from Paul's mouth, and we know that, because he didn't do much traveling. He stayed in Ephesus for the most part here. Other times he traveled all over. But Acts 20, verse 18 says that from the moment he came to Asia, he spent the whole time with the leaders of Ephesus. Acts 20, verse 31 says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night, excuse me, night and day with tears. So here's the question. If he stayed in Ephesus, how was it that the whole of Asia hears the word of God? Everyone who dwelt there. It wasn't through Paul. It was through these people that he was raising up. And these leaders were affecting other leaders. And they were affecting others. And before you knew it, there was an influence throughout uh, Asia. And by the way, he didn't train leaders the way we do nowadays. It's ridiculous how we train leaders nowadays. First of all, we give them a hazing. We put them for four years into a secular degree where we say, if you survive the secular training and you come out, then you're ready to be a pastor. No, no, no. First of all, then you have to get a master of divinity degree. You've got to learn Greek and Hebrew. That's the Greek model of learning. And it is not sufficient to be able to bring long-lasting reformation. Paul used the Hebrew model, which was a mentorship model, uh, which CPC is uh, using and the older Presbyterians used to use, where, yes, there's a lot of academic, intensive reading, but there's an investing of a a leader's life into the lives of others, where they come with him and they imitate him and they see how ministry is being accomplished. And then he sends them out, and they have incredible influence. That's how all Asia heard the word. Now, by the time Paul's three years are done, we can deduce from the various epistles, other letters, that leaders had had enough influence that churches were coming together in at least Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. And given the way he raised up leaders and they raised up leaders there no doubt was a great deal of influence that went beyond that. That's what we know for sure happened as a result of his ministry. The on-fire <laughs> the on-fire churches engaged in personal evangelism like some of our young people are beginning to do. And they're saying, yeah, let's go out there. Let's do evangelism. And I say, amen. Let's, let's go together. You know, let's, let's be involved in this. They're obviously passionate about their Christianity. By the end of the two or three years, Luke could honestly say, This continued for two years that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this is the kind of impact I long for our church to have. That's the kind of impact. Now, Paul didn't have it in every place that he he was at, but it was a pattern that was healthy. It was a pattern that he strove for, and it is a pattern that we desire to be involved in. It is not our desire to have a Mongo big church. It's our desire to have preaching points and other points of influence all over the place so that various communities are impacted by the word that is spoken. We don't want to be held back by a lack of zeal or a lack of faith in what God can do. We very much desire to have at least three preaching points in three different communities, maybe more. We don't know if the Lord will prosper this, but we desire to see God's kingdom advancing. And uh, we want to labor diligently to achieve that. So please pray for us. Pray that God would prosper, that first of all, our plans would be God's plans. We would have His mind, and that God would prosper the work of our hands. 
and make us successful in this. And pray that when opposition comes from Satan, as it surely will, as it did in this chapter, we would have the power of the Spirit to resist the satanic. And pray that when people start resisting us, as they resisted Paul in this chapter, we would not become bitter. We would not be overcome, but instead we would overcome evil with good. We would constantly be investing good and love into the lives of other people. Paul had a lot of opposition during the three years he was in Ephesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, writing from Ephesus here, he says this, In danger every hour, I die daily. I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. It appears that Paul had sometime during this period been thrown into a Colosseum to fight the wild beasts, and this puny little man somehow had fought them and succeeded. It's probably one of the unusual miracles that's mentioned in verse 11. The point is, life is not always hunky-dory. Okay? Second uh, Corinthians 1, he said, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were unaware, brethren, excuse me, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. We should not be afraid of such pressures that we despair even of life, so long as it drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the God who raises the dead so filled Paul with power, he gave him the energy to keep going on. He gave to Paul strength of spirit and resolve. He gave to Paul faith. He gave to him miracles and, and other things that we see uh, in this chapter where it, Ephesus itself was beginning to, to be turned upside down. Now, building on last week's sermon, let's commit ourselves to advancing the kingdom of God, but not with man-made things, you know, using the story we started with, not with pontoon bridges and walkie-talkies and tanks, not with anything related to our human ingenuity and our plans and agendas, but seeking the mind of Christ, let's advance the kingdom of God by being filled with His Spirit. He will give to us all the resources that we need uh, to be able to achieve this. And may He receive the glory. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word. Please, Lord, Help us to be completely submissive to Your will, to be able to say in our hearts, Your will be done. Father, if there are any in this congregation here right now who are resistant to what Your Word has clearly said to them, that they would not be stubborn in spirit, hard-hearted, that You would send Your surgical knife opening up the recesses of their heart and helping them to say, Your will be done. Your will be done in my life, O Lord. May Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And may it all be to Your glory. Father, use this church, whether in incremental, small, or in huge advances of Your kingdom, but use this congregation for the advancement of Your glory, for the lifting up of Your name, for Your honor, for the rejoicing of the angels in heaven, May we see souls saved. May we see congregations uh, reformed. May we see sheep rescued. May we see, Father, Your honor being spread to the far reaches of uh, the uh, Midwest here. And we will bless You, Father. We will give You the glory. Thank You for the privilege that we have of serving You. In Christ's name, Amen.